You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. They laid in wait for the president, and when he was at his weakest, they sprung. They weren't assassins, though. They were hecklers. And we'll talk a bit about speech-disrupting persons, a president who was darn good at his craft, how a smell led to a constitutional change. We'll discuss gay marriage, pizza, werewolves, and the word and. We'll also talk a bit about the 14th Amendment. A Harper's Weekly cartoon from many years ago shows a president, Andrew Johnson, who prior to being mayor, governor, senator, and vice president, was a tailor. Playing on this, the anti-Johnson Harpers showed an Uncle Sam figure who has brought a tattered coat to a tailor. It is obviously Johnson's tailor shop. The coat is labeled the U.S. Constitution. It's lasted 64 years, the Uncle Sam figure says, but still, it fits great. It just needs a little adjustment. No, says President Johnson in the cartoon. He would not fix it. I'm not on the jobbing line right now. Harper's was poking fun at Andy Johnson for his lack of support for a new fix-it amendment after the American Civil War that would help ensure the rights of black citizens. In the process, they were poking a little fun at the president's common roots. The president was getting a lot of criticism at this time, and he decided to take his critics on and begin what he called a swing around the circle, a tour of states where congressmen would be up for election so he could plead his case to the crowds and get the type of Congress he wanted who would support his version of how Reconstruction should go. Along with him came William Seward, Lincoln's loyal secretary of state, who stayed mostly loyal to the president, and General Grant, who was on the tour because he was ordered to be there. When asked about why Seward would join, Seward made a comment about ministers serving the king. It was meant to deflect some of the responsibility from him. That engendered yet another cartoon in Harper's Weekly, which showed President Johnson in a royal carriage. A robe, a staff, loyal servants in silly-looking clothes, doting over him. And as President Johnson would get into his speeches explaining his side of the story, he was plagued by hecklers. They would come into the crowd, but he couldn't see who they were, but he heard them. Hang Davis, they said. You don't belong here, they'd say. In one speech, a voice shouted, You are a tailor! But you're the president. You don't answer hecklers. You don't answer hecklers. You don't answer... Yes, I was that, Johnson thundered. It don't affect me in the least. When I was a tailor, I made a close fit, and I was always punctual to my customers. A friendly, or maybe a sarcastic, voice then said, No patchwork. That's right, the president said. No patchwork. 
They weren't talking about tailoring anymore. This was a hint that Johnson considered the Constitution a finished document that needed no patch like a tailor would give to a piece of clothing. But it was in Cleveland where they really got to the president. Shouts of, traitor, hang Jeff Davis, the usual stuff. You don't belong, Johnson responded. I know that some of you don't like that my friend is no more and I am placed in the position. Unfortunately, a crowd member shouted. Yes, it is unfortunate that there is a God rules on high and decides these things. But it was when another heckler called him a traitor that he said, Come out where I can see you. Many in the crowd said that Johnson was intoxicated. This was a common complaint about the president. All of this was standard Tennessee soapbox politics. But for a president of the United States, one member of the Cleveland crowd shouted, Is this dignified? Leading Johnson to give a whole speech about how, no, he didn't think it was dignified, but a president of the United States had to defend himself, and if he didn't defend himself, then what worth? The president's barnstorm, designed to build public opinion, to elect congressmen that would help him, did the opposite. Probably no orator of ancient or modern times ever accomplished as much with a fortnight of speaking as Mr. Johnson has done. So wrote the nation. It was not a compliment. John Sherman, brother of the general and a significant senator, said that the presidency had now become a grog house. Johnson first Congress became nasty. Andrew Johnson removed hundreds of Republican postmasters, then had them replaced sometimes with disloyal and copperheads. Then it was discovered some of the men he had replaced were wounded Union soldiers. He vetoed the expansion of the Freedmen's Bureau designed to help newly enfranchised former slaves. He vetoed a civil rights bill. By 1866, it started to be clear it was President vs. Congress. There's a lot of talk about the 14th Amendment in immigration, in marriage, in gun ownership, and often these debates reference the history of the law, what its framers thought or may have thought. But to understand the history, you have to go right to the source of the amendment. The battle between a president who wanted to put things back the way they were before the war and the certainly mislabeled radical Republicans in Congress, actually it was a coalition of moderate, radical, and by the end of the fight, conservative Republicans in Congress who thought that a war that cost so many lives had to bring some kind of change. Called to office by a calamity so appalling, a modest man would have maintained a dignified reserve, taken the counsel of others, and considered soberly his position. Historian James Ford Rhodes wrote, But Johnson had an itch for speech-making. At first, though, he was speech-making in a manner in line with those Republicans in Congress. He wanted to punish the plantation owners and divide up their states. No one he hated more. He wanted to hang Jefferson Davis for flimsy evidence of his role in Lincoln's death. Even Benjamin Wade, a radical, thought maybe Johnson should cool this talk when he first took office. But there wasn't any cool in Johnson. A tailor who had learned to read as his wife taught him while he was doing his sewing. Who learned to speak, hearing the great speeches of William Pitt and John Fox in a single book that he owned. 
who learned to win an election as a candidate of a working man's party reeling against the aristocracy in his hometown of Greenville, Tennessee, who then became mayor and who was good enough politician to twice become governor of a slave state that rarely sent laborers to high office. Then he became the only non-aristocrat to go from the South to the Senate. There he took on secessionists in his party as the only Southern senator to stay in the Senate. And when Tennessee was partially brought back into the Union, he became its military governor. And in the rough and tumble of Eastern Tennessee politics, one had to be verbally fluent, possess strong physical courage, and defend oneself against insult and personal attack to defend honor and to be worth anything in those type of politics. But when placed in an office where those qualities no longer suited the individual. Well, Johnson had had a few good weeks, maybe a few good months. Fifteen days after Lincoln's assassination, Johnson apparently told Charles Sumner and Chief Justice Chase that he would consider giving the vote to former slave, something that Sumner repeated to his radical friends in Congress. Like a good early 19th century president, when the matter came up upon considering North Carolina's re-entry into the Union, he brought it to his cabinet. Cabinet members disagreed. They were just about split in half, with a few more of the members wanting the vote for blacks. Johnson didn't take a position in that cabinet meeting. He said he'd think on the question. Now, it's easy now with modern ears to listen to this and apply the values of our times, but there was divided opinion even in the victorious North about what to do here. One point of view that certainly would have been presented to the president as commander-in-chief was that of General Sherman, who was holding North Carolina at that time. And Sherman said such a measure would revive the war. Lincoln's so-called one-tenth plan for bringing states back in the Union after the Civil War, with malice towards none, right? One-tenth of the loyal people in that state had to swear an oath to loyalty and then they could form a new government. This is how he allowed in Louisiana and Arkansas. But Lincoln's plan had no provision for voting for blacks. One other thing to consider, not all northern states at the time of 1866, hard to believe, had a provision. Only six states allowed this. All the other states had some provision in some way or the other that denied blacks votes. By the end of May 1865, President Johnson had thought enough about the question. First of all, he pardoned all who had participated in the rebellion, who were not officers of the Confederacy, governors, members of Congress in the Confederacy, or those who owned more than $20,000 in property. Johnson hated the aristocracy. These guys started the war. But even those people could appeal to the president personally and make their case for pardon. Then he decided North Carolina could come into the Union with a convention, but the laws in place before the war, allowing only whites to attend that convention, would be followed. But Johnson made it clear that convention could extend the franchise to anyone, and he would have no opposition. The president, Johnson thought, constitutionally as an executive, could not order it done himself. And so he would end up doing a similar proclamation for Mississippi, then Georgia, Texas, Alabama, South Carolina, and Florida. The cabinet, even those in the cabinet who wanted to have the federal government impose suffrage for black citizens, went along initially. One of these was Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War. He said he yielded to the practical difficulty of imposing such a measure and Johnson's constitutional arguments. 
1865, even as he took measures that the radicals in Congress were disappointed by, there was some agreement in the government. The Nation magazine said, The president's policy has the miraculous quality of appealing to satisfy all parts of the country. Union Party conventions in 1865 endorsed what Johnson was doing, though Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner, the radicals and the Republican, were not quite going along. Oliver Morton of Indiana, the hero for Republicans, gave Johnson some cover and made the argument for him, which is still the pro-Johnson argument throughout history. Johnson, Morton said, was just implementing what Lincoln's policy would have been. So Mississippi meets under the Johnson Reconstruction scheme, has a convention, says slavery's illegal in Mississippi, sounds good to the North. The secession ordinance is void, sounds good to the North. Now, Johnson writes a telegram to the governor, the provisional governor of Mississippi now, and says, why not extend the franchise to blacks? Look, you can extend it to those who can read and write and have at least $250 in real estate. Unfortunately, Mississippi didn't heed this, undermined Johnson's state-by-state strategy, lost an opportunity for the president's plan to move forward. Nevertheless, as 1866 opened, Johnson's State of the Union sounded a sincere note. We should note that Johnson forcefully demanded that black citizens have the right to free industry, to own property, and to the security of those types of freedoms, even if he wasn't going to argue in the State of the Union to give them the vote. The newly reconstructed states moved a little. Black citizens could sue and be sued. Marriages were recognized. Property rights in some cases established, but there'd be no assembly for black citizens, no vote, no militia rights, harsher punishments for them if they committed crimes. They could not testify against whites, and in some cases, free movement was to be reduced. These have been known through history now as the Black Codes and they inflamed opinion in the North, turned the country against Johnson's experimental state-by-state, do-it-the-way-Lincoln-was-proposing policy. Particularly horrific to Northern ears and our ears today is that of Mississippi. It forbid blacks to testify against whites, no jury or militia, but worse, it required that black citizens sign contracts with a planter contracts would be annual. If they failed to sign a contract, they would be arrested and then hired out by the sheriff to another planter. In Mississippi, if a black ran away, he forfeited his wages for a year. The same in South Carolina. They would get wages for their service. So it wasn't slavery anymore, but they would be required to work and didn't have an awful lot of choice about the employment. If they decided to be unemployed, the state would get involved. To Northern ears, this was nothing more than slavery all over again. And when you think about the members of the Grand Army of the Republic, the Union Army that had fought, that had seen so many of their friends and neighbors in, in, in New England towns, whole male population of towns decimated, and now this, just to put things back the way they were. Northern opinion was inflamed. And Johnson, not a good political operator to start with, was in a bad political position. 1866 brought a midterm year, and then, as now, the politics change a little bit. Yes, technically, Johnson was elected as a member of the Union Party, joined with Republicans in 1864, even though he had been 
previously a member of the Democratic Party. But the Union Party had only been through one election. The ties weren't strong. And the sides started to split. As Democrats in Congress started to support Johnson more and more, this alerted the Republicans, and especially the radical Republicans who thought the country was giving the rebels a new license. At the Mechanics Institute of New Orleans, when a group of black and white citizens convened to form a new state government. The mayor of New Orleans had tipped off a mob of white citizens and police that the convention was going on. They descended on the Mechanics Institute. The police fired shots through the windows. A white flag appeared that the group inside would surrender. No quarter was given, though. The mob killed 40 black citizens, three white supporters, would wound 100 more. Federal troops could not get there in time to save those in the Mechanics Institute due to a miscommunication. The police, who were supposed to be protecting the, the city, enforcing law and order, were part of the mob. General Sherrod had telegraphed Grant saying it was no riot, it was a massacre. New Orleans, more than anything else, had an impact on public opinion in the North. An impact on the 1866 midterms. A Congress would be voted in with a supermajority to override anything that Johnson would do. Antonin Scalia, in a California lawyer interview a few years ago, stirred things up a bit. Well, he had planned to. He told friends, according to some reports, that he intended to get out in public a bit more. Supreme Court justices don't normally talk that much, but he felt his side had to get out more because the rest of the media was against his point of view. He also did what Supreme Court justices don't do that often. He commented on a matter that may come before the court. He said, the 14th Amendment didn't protect women from discrimination. Sorry, but it doesn't, he said. The framers weren't thinking of women. Nobody voted for that. Well, on the surface, of course, that's literally true. The struggle that created the 14th had to do with Andy Johnson and state treatment of blacks. If Johnson had been a better politician, or if the Redeemer governors would have taken different actions, if a different party would have prevailed in the midterm in 1866, it's doubtful a 14th Amendment would exist as legislature or state solutions or acts of Congress would have been sufficient. An amendment became the only way for an up-in-arms Congress to get around a recalcitrant executive. It had little to do with female suffragists, in a strict sense. They were not included in the legislation. Let's compare the 14th with its contemporary, the 15th. The 15th, ratified in 1870, is a few sentences, and it says, No one shall be deprived of their vote on the basis of color. Simple. Clear. But the 14th, it has so much to say. It does so much. It defines citizenship, creates the basis for voting on the percentage of empowered people. It bans Confederates from holding office, at least until Congress approves. It affirms the debt of the United States or repudiates the Confederate debt. And it gives Congress the power to enforce all of those provisions. There are several sections, but a couple are important. Section 1 defines citizens as all persons born or naturalized in the United States. A couple of reasons for this. Slaves that were born elsewhere could not be re-enslaved under this amendment. They are citizens. But also, the Republican Party had a German element, and the 1860 platform actually contained a provision like Section 1. There should be no difference between citizens born and naturalized ones. So, two birds and one stone. Plus this, a state 
cannot make a law that abridges the privileges and the immunities of a citizen, nor deny them equal protection under the law. You can't treat one group with one set of laws and another, such as former slaves of 1866, with another set of laws. But what are these privileges and immunities? Well, for a little definition on what this actually means, the core privileges and immunities that citizens of the United States have, you can thank a fellow named Garfield, who took his little rickety boat and sailed into New Jersey waters to pick up some delicious oysters. He was stopped and fined because he was from Delaware. No, said the Supreme Court, an opinion written by Justice Washington, yes, the big guy's nephew, you can't violate the privileges and immunities of a citizen, and he started to define some of them. High sea travel was one of them. What's another? He listed some. Habeas corpus, restriction of taking and holding property, the ability to reside in a state, New Jersey can't prevent someone from Delaware from moving in, or the ability to pass through a state. Delaware can't stop New Jerseyans from coming in. Now, section two. Representation shall be appropriated among the whole number of persons, striking down that three-fifths little deal of the Constitutional Convention. But if the right is denied to any males over 21 years of age, the basis of representation therein will be reduced. Now, what is this? Even in the North, after the war, popular opinion, which supported black freedom from slavery, did not support black suffrage. Even in this fix-it-all amendment, Congress wasn't ready to do that yet, didn't think it would get passed. This was a nudging device for Southern governments. We won't force you, but we will incent you. The difference between 40 Southern House seat members and 70 Southern House members would be if you grant your citizens the right to vote. If you don't give them the right to vote, you can't claim males for apportionment if they're not allowed to vote. They had hopes, at least long-term, that this device would work. Before enactment, for instance, Robert E. Lee was asked what he thought about it. Lee said that it seemed fair. Virginia would probably take the lesser representation now, but may be changed if she could be convinced black citizens would vote responsibly. It was still a tough sell in 66 to pass a federal law that all citizens could vote as simple as that. The amendment, in its early crafting, had Unionist supporters in Maryland, Kentucky, and West Virginia. Enfranchise or don't, the 14th says, but don't reap the benefit from non-voters. So we go back to Scalia's comments. No one voted for discrimination against women. Nobody voted for that. Section 1 starts with all persons born or naturalized. Persons. That's interesting. This is partially a swipe at the Dred Scott decision, which says blacks weren't people. They could not become citizens. And at the black codes enacted into various states. You can't restrict movement, basic rights, interest. You can't do that under the 14th. Section 2 says, No state shall make any law which abridges the privileges and immunities of any person. Any person. They did not make an amendment limited to black citizens, but in the bit about apportionment, it specifically says that apportionment will be based on the votes of males. They did not make an amendment limited to black citizens. The word used is persons. They certainly could have passed a law that said black citizens. They did not. Now, I can say that, but there's a bit of a debated point here. It's a debate that goes on and on. In the early 70s, a controversial legal scholar named Raoul Berger began arguing that the 14th was misused. 
It only applied to rudimentary civil rights, equal punishment for crime, the right to own property. They did not intend any citizen equal access to voting booths, schools, juries, or jobs. The 14th couldn't be used that way, and in the 60s and 70s, it was being used that way. This argument was shot down in the 70s. It was blasphemous. The 14th was a powerful weapon to knock down civil rights abuses. In the U.S. vs. Guest, it said that you can't treat some people with protection on the highways of a state and not others. In another case, in Midland, Texas, the 14th was used to throw out certain legislative districts that were used to prevent blacks from having equal representation. Berger had gotten some fame because his book was used in the impeachment of Nixon. He had written one of the few books on impeachment that was available at the time. But now he was annoying some of the liberals that he had delighted a few years before. He argued that the road to Weimar and Hitler is to tamper with constitutional guarantees for benign purposes. He was shouted down by the 60s, 70s interpretation of the 14th. The framers left the definitions vague, Harold Hyman of Rice University said. Claremont College's Professor Leonard Levy said, a lot of people might agree with now, some may not. We cannot be governed by the dead hand of the past. Of course, Berger's theories went nowhere, although the Berger court, no relation, did start to ease off a bit on using the 14th in civil rights cases. I bring this up to tell you, it is not a new debate entirely, this debate over the purpose of the 14th and using it today. This was a debate incurred in the 70s and went one way. Whatever the purpose of the 14th was originally, we know this. It didn't work, at least the way most of the vehement framers wanted. The 14th didn't offer the vote through its apportionment device, and a 15th Amendment was needed to make it clear that blacks could vote in the United States. States still did things like poll taxes, which existed all the way to the 1960s. It's had a mixed history, the 14th. It's a double-edged sword that's been used by the right and the left. It's prevented unions because the court felt the due process language in the amendment enabled everyone to make a free contract. Maximum hour laws and minimum wage laws were struck down using the sword of the 14th. It also blocked a law saying blacks cannot serve on juries. And it cut down a law saying the government cannot discriminate against Chinese in the laundry business. Yet, it was no help in the Plessy v. Ferguson case. At times, its blade was dulled. When you think about constitutional law, and I know it's something that happens often, when you drift off and think about constitutional law and that 14th Amendment, you think about the word slaughter and the so-called slaughterhouse cases comes up. There can be nothing more jarring than a city full of slaughterhouses where cattle is brought in by boat and butchered in any one of a number of places. Indeed, an estimated 300,000 animals a year were butchered in New Orleans, and especially at low tide, the smell was horrific. But the smell wasn't the only problem. Eleven cholera epidemics had broken out in New Orleans over a 30-year period from the 1830s to the end of the Civil War. So, the state of Louisiana under Reconstruction government, some might say a carpetbagger government, some might say a bribed-induced government, decided to give the butchers licenses to one corporation who would get control over all butchery operations and keep butcher operations out of the water supply. 
the exclusive right to run a slaughterhouse went to the Crescent City Company, who would build a slaughterhouse south of the city. They would be exclusive for 25 years. All other slaughterhouses would be boarded up by the state. Well, the Butcher's Benevolent Association of New Orleans were represented by the former Supreme Court Justice Stephen Campbell, a Georgian appointed by Franklin Pierce. He was an opponent of secession, and he had freed his own slaves, but with the outbreak of the Civil War, he left and joined the Confederate government as an assistant secretary of war. Now he was a lawyer, and he built a thriving practice in post-war New Orleans, and took a special interest in those cases which involved the hated Reconstruction government in his city. Here, he saw a way to change the meaning of the 14th. He noticed the language, any person, right? It didn't say any white man. It didn't say any black man. It said any person in the 14th had these privileges and immunities, had a right to due process. It was not racially limited. So if one could protect black citizens, it could also stop this Reconstruction government from blocking butchers, sustaining their lives through labor. He even used the 13th. Campbell argued that the new Reconstruction government of Louisiana had put the butchers into slavery and violated the 13th. They can only work for one company. But he used a dash of the 14th too. He said, their privileges and immunities, the right to work, to earn an income to feed their families, was prevented by the state. For the Supreme Court in 1872, this would be a bitter case. The court consisted of Chief Justice Chase, an Ohio Republican that was Lincoln's Treasury Secretary, who he fired, but then appointed as Chief Justice. Samuel Miller, Lincoln's biggest supporter in Iowa, appointed in 1862 when Western states asked for a Westerner on the court. Lincoln's Illinois friend and former campaign manager, David Davis, was also wearing a robe at this time. The Californian, Stephen Field, who would soon be a leader on the court, now in the minority. Confederate sympathizer, Nathan Clifford, appointed by Buchanan and hanging on for a Democratic president so that he could retire. Also on the court was Joseph Bradley, a former Whig New Jerseyan appointed by Grant and Ward Hunt, former Democrat turned Republican, an ally of Roscoe Conkling, the boss of New York, appointed by Grant at his insistence. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Then there was William Strong, Yale man from Connecticut who practiced law and politics in Pennsylvania, appointed by Grant after his first choice, former War Secretary Edwin Stanton, died. And there was Noah Swain, anti-slavery Virginian, who left his home state, moved to Ohio because of his beliefs in the 1820s, highly involved in Ohio Republican politics, appointed by Lincoln in 1862. These men would be bitterly divided, but the whole thing was ironic. The opportunity was there, with a ball thrown to them by a former Confederate, to expand the 14th in a way that would have changed law forever. It would just rule for their clients and against the Reconstruction government. 
but they didn't swing at that ball in a 5-4 decision. Miller, Clifford, Strong, Hunt, and Davis ruled against the Butchers. Swain, Bradley, Chase, and Field dissented. Miller wrote the decision favoring the Reconstruction government in New Orleans. It's difficult to see a justification for the assertion the butchers are deprived of their right to labor. The wisdom of the monopoly may be in question, but, Miller argued, this power has always been conceded to the states. He added, unwholesome trade, slaughterhouses, operations offensive to the senses, the deposit of powder, the application of steam power buildings with combustibles, the burial of the dead, they may all be interdicted by law. The police power extends to the prosecution of the laws, limbs, and health of all persons in the state. In other words, about those slaughterhouses, they smell so they can be regulated. Miller dismissed the 13th argument out of hand. His dismissal is unquestioned today. That only applies to involuntary servitude. No one forced those butchers to work. They could get another profession or work for Crescent City. Miller brings up something we tend to forget. An interesting pattern. I talked about it on a podcast on constitutional amendments some years ago, and now it's in the archive, which is available on the website, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics. Thank you, Justice Miller, for the opportunity to advertise. Miller identified in the Slaughterhouse Cases decision that the first 11 amendments to the Constitution were passed right after the Constitution. The 12th was right after that. Putting it, he said, in an analogous time. Then there was this big gap between constitutional amendments. And these have become historical, of another age. Events, Miller said, had forced three more amendments in the past few years. So we have an amendment in 1804, and then a 60-year gap before there were amendments again. The most most cursory glance, Miller wrote, indicates the unity of purpose. It was the onerous disabilities and burdens placed upon the members of a particular race by the acts of legislation by several states, without which none of these amendments would be suggested. So writes Miller. This is Miller's wind-up to snipping the scope of the 14th Amendment. It was designed, Miller says, to end slavery in every respect and to raise blacks to citizenship. Miller speculated that if another race, he says Chinese or Mexicans, were enslaved, the laws would protect them. But otherwise, we had to look at the purpose of these laws. That was Miller's interpretation. He had four justices to go along with him. Then he dug down into the language. The 14th says that any person born or naturalized is a citizen of the United States and a citizen of the state in which they reside. Now, he reads it in a certain way. He reads that and is surely something important. The word and. Now, you or I might say, and is and. What does that matter? They could have just said, Miller argues, a citizen of the United States. But they didn't. They made a point of saying, citizen of the United States and your state. Miller reads into that that the framers meant to separate in Federalist fashion the two types of citizenship. The citizenship, California, New York, New Jersey, South Carolina, and the federal citizenship. And thus, everything that follows, the part about protecting the privileges and immunities, and he defines that, right to travel between states, 
right to take advantage of the justice system, right of assembly, the right of protection on the high seas. All of those things only applies, according to Miller in the Slaughterhouse Case decision, to federal privileges and immunities. The framers were taking an extraordinary action for an extraordinary situation. Now, we do know that John Bingham of Ohio, a congressman who would end up being a prosecutor in President Johnson's impeachment, a moderate Republican who turned against the president after he vetoed the Civil Rights Act and the Congressional Reconstruction Act. We do know that he had a big role creating the 14th Amendment. He said in Congress, Many instances of injustice and oppression have occurred in the state legislators of this country, for which the government has no remedy. Cruel and unusual punishments have been inflicted. To Miller's ears, what Bingham said, it was a cry for a federal defense of federal rights. However, pervading this sentiment for a strong national government is the wake of the Civil War. We do not see in these amendments any purpose to destroy the main features of the general system, Miller said. In other words, the 14th was written to battle the black codes being passed by these Redeemer government states and not to undo the rest of the Constitution or certainly not to undo federalism. That is the crux of the decision in the slaughterhouse cases. Now you know. And in a sense, Miller appointed by Lincoln and Scalia appointed by Reagan, when the centuries apart, share the same fear that if expanded, the 14th would undermine the entire relationship between the states and the Union. Scalia, in his California lawyer interview, says, If you give to those many provisions of the Constitution an evolving meaning that are necessarily broad, due process, equal protection, cruel and unusual punishment, any meaning you want, there are no limitations on current society. The Constitution, Scalia feels, tells current society what it cannot do without the extraordinary efforts needed to amend the Constitution. Okay, here's my example. The Constitution is like that guy who, oh, in the movies about werewolves, there's always some guy who knows he's about to turn into a werewolf, so it's like, tie me down in this chair or lock me up in chains in this chair or lock the door because I'm going to turn into a werewolf, I know, and I don't want to. Unless there's some extraordinary effort needed to amend that limit you place on yourself, you can't do it. That's what Scalia feels his role is. He's the lock and chain on the werewolf. According to legal scholar Lawrence Tribe, what Miller did in the slaughterhouse cases is read the privileges and immunities out of the Constitution, render it useless, nor is the modern criticism the only one. In his dissent, Justice Field said the decision rendered the first section of the 14th a vain and idle enactment. But Field was not exactly in support of civil rights. See, he did see the cases turning on business rights. In other words, the 14th was about the right not to have a state monopoly on an industry like those butchers. So the guy who was for civil rights narrowed the 14th. And the Democrat against civil rights wanted to broaden it. Not everyone in the dissent shared the pro-business of Fields' dissent. Bradley and Swain, justices in the course descending, wrote their own opinions. Swain wrote that the majority's ruling turned what was meant for bread into stone. In addition to the slaughterhouse cases, the civil rights cases were the one-two punch that limited the 14th. 
1875, Congress passed a very forward-thinking civil rights act, something you might have expected in the 20th century. It didn't just address what state governments were doing. It found that all persons shall be entitled to the full and equal enjoyment of the accommodations, advantages, facilities, and privileges of inns, of boats, carriages, even theaters and places of public amusement. The Supreme Court, eight years later, ruled it unconstitutional. Justice Bradley wrote a court decision which found that no part of the 14th Amendment applied to private actions, only to state actions. They couldn't read any other interpretation of that amendment, however meritorious the federal government had exceeded, had exceeded its function. Justice John Harlan, former slave owner, now on the court, dissented. Private railroads, he said, are by law public highways. We found that in court cases before. It's the function of the government to regulate what goes on at the highways and who travels on them. Innkeepers have long been held to a sort of public servitude in this way. They had no right to deny anyone conducting themselves in proper manner admission to their inns. So you limit a railroad, you limit inns, and you're really limiting freedom of movement. How far can someone travel without using those conveyances? That's discrimination impinging on the black citizen's freedom of travel, a fundamental aspect of liberty. Public amusements, Harlan argued, usually get a license from the state, thus they are entwined in state policy. Harlan's words were not heeded, and the rule had been pretty well held that you only apply this 14th Amendment to what the Congress, they thought, was trying to apply it to in 1868 to state action, not private action. The court's ruling in Slaughterhouse and the civil rights cases actually hasn't been entirely overturned, but it's been picked at. Especially when, in the early 1960s, William Burton really needed a cup of coffee. He parked his car in a parking garage and entered the Eagle Coffee Shop in Wilmington, Delaware. William Burton was black, and because of that, he was refused service in the Eagle Coffee Shop. The coffee shop was in a commercial space and leased out by a government agency, the Wilmington Parking Authority. They operated the garage. So Burton sued both the parking authority and the coffee shop for violating his equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment. The coffee shop owner had argued that he was a private actor and could do what he wanted. For the court, the irony was too notable. A man was free of discrimination in one part of a building where the government operated protected by the United States government. And then when he left his car and walked to another part of the same building, he had no protection. They ruled for Burton, but only because of that lease the coffee shop had with the state. Not sure if he ever got his cup of coffee. That's a rare usage, though. When the court forced the heart of Atlanta Motel, a 216-room motel, which refused to rent rooms to black patrons traveling through Georgia, when it ordered that hotel to open up its rooms to all races, it didn't use the 14th. That was too difficult. Instead, simple commerce power was used. Court found that the business clearly affected interstate commerce. As the Civil War drew to a close, it was clear that there would be an amendment to end slavery, one that would put the matter to rest, as President Lincoln suggested. The 13th Amendment was inevitable, but the 14th was not. It came wholly on the fight with President Johnson and the events of the midterm of 1866, the riots in New Orleans, Andrew Jackson's disastrous swing around the circle. So the historical support for a textualist, 
or narrow interpretation of the 14th as only what the framers wanted was that indeed the framers only wanted this amendment to enforce federal power where a state was grossly abusing it. And while they didn't like it, building a state slaughterhouse to get it away from the city was not comparable to the Black Codes. Slaughterhouses has never been overturned and it's influenced the scope of the 14th even today. The 14th was used for a time in business cases, as Stephen Field wanted, to protect freedom of contract and liberty of enterprise. In 1895, New York state government enacted the Bake Shop Act. It regulated sanitary conditions in bakeries, but as a part of that, it prohibited tired bakers from working in bakeries more than 10 hours per day or 60 hours per week. They thought this might be a cause of the sanitary violations. But it wasn't done just for nice reasons. New immigrant bakers who were willing to work longer hours were putting some existing bakers on unemployment. In 1899, baker Joseph Lochner, owner of Lochner's Home Bakery in Utica, New York, permitted an employee working for him to work more than 60 hours in one week. He was fined $25 by New York for the violation. Then he did it again. For second offense in 1901, Lochner drew a fine of $50. Lochner took his case to the Supreme Court. By a vote of 5-4 in 1905, decision written by Justice Rufus Peckham, ruled that the law limiting Baker's working hours did not constitute a legitimate exercise of state police powers. Baker's, Peckham argued, are in no sense wards of the state. They're able to assert their rights and take care of themselves. This case, Lochner, would set forth what was called a Lochner era of the 14th Amendment. And so, in 1918, when Congress passed a law setting minimum wages for women and children in the District of Columbia, the question was one of balancing the police power of Congress with the right of individuals to conduct their own affairs. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Children's Hospital wanted to pay less than the minimum wage. The District of Columbia Wage Board tried to enforce the law. They went to the Supreme Court. The court sought to drive a balance based on what had been said in Lochner. So if it's just about minimum working hours, that's okay. But minimum wages, no, no. Once you've set working hours, two parties can still negotiate between each other about what wages they'll be paid. The state has nothing to do with that. 
During the Depression, Oklahoma decided that ice was not a business. It was actually a utility. Well, it's hot there. Makers of ice had to get a certificate from the state. This was in the 1930s. Part of the thinking was that you could increase prices if you limited the amount of people making and selling items. Makers of ice had to get a certificate from the state of Oklahoma. Well, Ernest Lieberman set up an ice plant without a license. And when another company complained, Oklahoma shut him down. He appealed to the Supreme Court. SCOTUS struck down the state statue. It violated Lieberman's freedom of enterprise. His privileges and immunities included a right to work to earn an income. State couldn't take it away. That was the way the law was interpreted at the time. Justice Louis Brandeis disagreed. The people during the Depression, he said, are confronted with an emergency stronger than anything that the nation has witnessed. I cannot believe that the framers of the 14th intended to leave us helpless to correct the evils of technological employment and excess capacity. But in the 1930s, the court modified its view. Elsie Parrish, a chambermaid working at Cascadian Hotel in the state of Washington, along with her husband, sued the hotel for the difference between what she was paid and the $14.50 per week, working 48 hours each week, by the way, the $14.50 per week that she was supposed to be paid, according to the state of Washington. She lost the first round. The Washington Supreme Court took the hotel's appeal, reversed the ruling, and Parrish went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in an opinion, written by Chief Justice Hughes, the court ruled that the Constitution permitted the restriction of liberty of contract by state law, where the restriction protected the community health and safety, particularly of vulnerable groups, like women's working hours. But soon that line would become blurry as the 14th was used in a series of cases applying to civil rights rather than business rights. When a man named Gitlow distributed socialist flyers, a newspaper called the Revolutionary Age, advocating the overthrow of the government, and New York sought to punish him. Why, there was a Red Scare going on, and it was 19 years since a president had been killed by an anarchist in the state of New York. The Supreme Court said Gitlow's First Amendment right moved through the 14th and could be applied to state action. Free speech was close to becoming a privilege and immunity. That really came when Jay Neer's paper said during the 1930s, in a time of gangsterism in the country, that Minnesota's politicians were in league with gangsters, and the state of Minnesota sought to suppress the newspaper. The court asserted the same. Jay Neer had a First Amendment right. Minnesota couldn't act because his First Amendment right traveled through the 14th and could not be abridged. Indeed, the 14th has been applied to the first most often when Jehovah's Witnesses, the Cantwells, preached in a public place without a permit, causing a lot of agita for people on the street. The court said, no, Connecticut could not use its power to stop them. That was 1940. And the court had applied the law to these northern states, not southern places abusing their power, but northern states limiting some of the rights in the Bill of Rights of their citizens. Now you see how this evolves. When you go to 1960, Lawrence Robison said, I'm an addict, and California's 90-day jail sentence for using drugs is cruel and unusual. The 14th stopped California's ability to punish him for what he determined was an illness. Then Clarence Earl Gideon was given the right to have a lawyer appointed for him that Florida didn't want to give and had no provision in their law to give him. 
the court said, you must give Gideon a lawyer. Civil rights pushed the interpretation of the 14th. Antonin Scalia. I do not pretend originalism is perfect. There are some questions you have no easy answer to. You have to take your best shot. We have the answer to a lot of stuff. And in terms of applying the 14th to sex discrimination, nobody voted for that. In the late 60s, Richard Reed died without a will. His two adoptive parents separated. And they each filed a competing petition for his estate. The state said that if two people were equally entitled to administer an estate, the male must be preferred over the female. Sally Reed, the mother, went to the Supreme Court, said, Idaho cannot do this to me. In a unanimous opinion, Justice Warren Berger wrote, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th prevents states from making an arbitrary discrimination just because of someone's gender. Ah, so then in 1981, several men tried to argue that the draft was a violation of equal protection. It's only applied to males, not to females. The court ruled against them. Incidentally, there were three dissenting judges to that decision who said women should be drafted as well. It's in 1996 where we see Scalia now on the bench in a part of this process. And theory can be put to action. Romer v. Evans. Colorado passed a referendum that said, essentially, that the state cannot pass a law banning discrimination based on sexual orientation. Romer was the governor of Colorado who had actually opposed the legislation. In a 6-3 majority, O'Connor, Souter, Ginsburg, Breyer, Stevens, and Kennedy, those justices, ruled that the so-called Amendment 2 in Colorado, the referendum, was unconstitutional. It violated the Equal Protection Clause. But even in that decision, they said that if, for instance, the law applied to landlords or employers, they might have a different opinion. But this was about state action. Scalia, along with Rehnquist and Justice Thomas, dissented. This wasn't prosecuting gay and lesbians. It was a ban on giving them what Scalia called special protections. But he went further. Colorado was protecting sexual mores. The decision put the institution's prestige behind saying opposition to homosexuality is reprehensible as racial or religious bias. To be fair, it was 1996. There's a world of difference already we can sense in the opinions between then and now. It's a little less shocking then. This is an issue we've seen change on in most of the lifetimes of the people I'm talking to now. But in 2003, in Lawrence v. Texas, which went right after sodomy laws, when the court ruled that the law violated the 14th Amendment, Justice O'Connor in her decision found that morality wasn't enough of a reason for such a law. Scalia took issue. If moral disappropriation of homosexuality is no legitimate state interest, what justification could there be for denying the benefits of marriage to homosexuals, he wrote his dissent. His sarcastic question is likely to be used in future decisions and dissents. Just to drive the point home, he began his dissent with a line from Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which O'Connor wrote, invoking stare decisis. He didn't agree with. Throwing her words back at her was one of the things that, according to Jeffrey Tobin's inside look at the Supreme Court, the nine, and drove her away from Scalia's influence. It's nice to be important, but important to be nice, even on the court. Scalia's decision will sound terrible, particularly if you're a member of the offended class of people. I should mention that he is in all of the cases 
siding with a legislature, or, in the case of Colorado, a referendum of the people. As he tells California lawyer, hey, we have things called legislatures, and they make up things called laws. You don't need a constitution to keep things up to date. We discussed in detail Section 1 and Section 2, not going to get into Sections 3 and 4 because they involve members of the Confederate government and they involve the debt of the United States. We talked about the 14th in relation to paying the public debt in a previous podcast. Not going to talk about that. Section 5, the 14th Amendment, though, seems uncontroversial, but it's something we have to discuss because unlike Section 1 or 2, it merely says, the Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. But this has been debated. It seems simple. That's just an enforcement mechanism. Congress can enforce the law. But how far can Congress go? Can Congress go to such extremes to protect the people that they obliterate the state's police power? In 1965, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Section 4, was aimed at New York City's large Puerto Rican population. It provided that no person who has completed the sixth grade in public school or an accredited private school in Puerto Rico in which the language of instruction was other than English shall be disenfranchised for inability to read or write English. Registered voters in the state of New York brought suit, alleging that Congress exceeded its powers of enforcement under the 14th Amendment and alleging that Congress infringed on the rights reserved to the state of New York by the 10th Amendment. Justice Brennan wrote the majority opinion. He stressed that Section 5 of the 14th Amendment is a positive grant of legislative power, authorizing Congress to exercise its discretion in determining the need and nature of legislation to secure the guarantees in the 14th Amendment. In other words, you can go up. The court can grant more rights to Congress where needed to protect people, but you can't go down. You can't protect citizens less. That ruling, Katzebach would hold, but not forever. More recent uh, Supreme Courts have been looking for a way to clamp down on that discretion a bit. A Virginia college student was assaulted and raped on a university campus. She was unhappy with the results of Virginia's criminal and civil courts in punishing her victims. There is help. A new law from Congress, the Violence Against Women Act, and through that, she sought to take her case to the federal courts. In a 5-4 decision, United States v. Morrison in 1994, the court invalidated the section of the Violence Against Women Act that gave victims of gender-motivated violence the right to sue their attackers in federal court. Chief Justice Rehnquist, writing for the majority, held that Congress lacked authority under the Commerce Clause or under the 14th Amendment. A horrible crime, of course, but within the state's police power to enforce. Another issue that really complicates the 14th, because so much of the discussion about 14th is about the kind of rights that maybe those who are on the left side of the political spectrum would like, that the Democratic Party would like it, civil rights reform and standing up for workers and minimum wages and things like that. The 14th plays a role in the gun debate as well. It might not seem like it was written for anything having to do with the Second Amendment, unless you consider the end of the Civil War and the beginning of Reconstruction did see a very important part of the gun debate, the returning of black Union soldiers who had been authorized by the government to have weapons, now in many cases returning back to southern states. The desire of freed black citizens to join and continue in militia units for their protection. 
in comments from some of the Republican supporters of civil rights legislation, the type of comments that would lead up to the 14th Amendment. Some statements were made about gun ownership. For instance, Republican Representative William D. Kelly of Pennsylvania expressed shock at the words of an anti-secessionist planter in Mississippi who expected the Union to restore slavery when he asked the government to take the arms away from black citizens. Senator Charles Sumner argued that necessity demanded first that the slaves should be declared free and secondly that muskets should be put into their hands. Representative Joshua Grinnell of Iowa complained, a white man in Kentucky may keep a gun. If a black man buys a gun, he forfeits it and pays a fine of $5, only trying to keep in possession a musket which he has carried through the war. Lyman Trumbull cited a report from Vicksburg, Mississippi, which stated, Nearly all the dissatisfaction that now exists in Mississippi among the freedmen is called by the abusive conduct of the white militia. Rather than restore order, the militia has been hanging freedmen or searching houses for arms. Representative Sidney Clark of Kansas referred in disgust to an 1866 Alabama law that provided it shall not be lawful for any freedman, mulatto, or free person of color in the state to own firearms or carry about his person a pistol or other deadly weapon. Mississippi also confiscated weapons that were found on blacks or in black homes. Sidney Clark raged over the amendment. Sir, I find in the Constitution of the United States an article which declares that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. For myself, I shall insist that the reconstructed rebels of Mississippi respect the Constitution in their local laws. Among the abuses of state governments, George Julian, a Republican of Indiana, noted that the Civil Rights Act they have passed is pronounced void by the jurists and courts of the South. Florida, among the many abuses he named, makes it a misdemeanor for colored men to carry weapons without a license. The punishment for the offense is whipping and the pillory. Indeed, these comments made by the Republican legislators prior to a 14th Amendment about the conditions in the South, what they felt was done being wrong, how privileges and immunities were being violated, gun ownership was among the topics, since blacks have been the most loyal fighters for the Union from the Deep South. But the Second Amendment, in the very few cases leading up to recent times where the Second Amendment was discussed at the Supreme Court, the 14th wasn't applied. In McDonald v. Chicago, 2010 decision of the court, the Supreme Court found that Chicago, Illinois, had violated the Second Amendment rights of its citizens by more or less banning handguns. However, the court used due process language in the 14th, not privileges and immunities in its decision, declined to say that gun ownership was a privilege and immunity of all citizens, such as the right to travel, the right to speak. In his dissent, Justice Clarence Thomas argued that it should be included in a process called incorporation. It should be included as a privilege and immunity. Thomas was the only one. Here's where all of this discussion gets a bit ideologically weird. A lot of conservatives like gun rights. They also like, or tend to like, the slaughterhouse decision, whether they know of it or not. They like the philosophy behind it, narrowing the 14th Amendment because the alternative is more federal intervention in everyday life. But you buy into slaughterhouse, you're thinking like Judge Miller, that the Congress only needed the amendments because there was no other way in emergency situation to get privileges and immunities back to black citizens where it was being violated. 
If you throw out Slaughterhouse, you then look at those comments as saying, these are every person's rights. And the 14th is designed to protect every person's rights, including freedom to travel, freedom to speak, right to bear arms. But more than that, you execute Section 5, which means the federal government can take whatever steps needed to enforce that law against a state. It's not surprising to me that when a lawyer made, during oral arguments, uh, during the Heller case, a suggestion that perhaps Slaughterhouse could be overturned as part of this case, Justice Scalia laughed and accused him of trying to make the Law School Hall of Fame. Due process, the fact that there was no fair hearing in Chicago and that guns were, for the most part, banned, which just made it extremely difficult to get one, uh, was enough. But a lone dissent vote on the court, we've seen it through history, doesn't mean that one day, perhaps, that right may be considered 14th worthy. That would delight those on the right. 14th use in another issue would delight those on the left. February 2004, San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom ordered the clerk of the city to issue marriage licenses to gay and lesbian couples who wanted it. Supporters of more traditional marriage fought Newsom in the courts. They failed. Then they put an initiative on California's 2008 ballot restricting marriage to heterosexual couples only. Measure passed by a narrow percentage, but still passed 52 to 48. Now, this is an issue that's headed towards the Supreme Court again, and once again, the 14th Amendment has entered the resulting debate. After all, can't argue that a state is not an actor in a marriage. People enter into marriage by obtaining a license or a divorce, by going to a court. There's many benefits and responsibilities, homebuyer programs, educational assistance, that are affected by whether the person's married or not. Thus, you can make an argument that there's a state actor, and because you're talking about two different groups of people, there's an equal protection argument. No doubt, the 14th plays a role in this. But as a question of constitutional law, it's not cut and dry. Supreme Court has made it clear that guarantee of equal treatment is not exact. The state doesn't have to treat every person exactly the same. You don't have to permit children to drive cars. You don't have to give us a, a senior citizen the right to go to grammar school if they wanted to. The court generally says it's reasonable for states to build categories if there's a rational basis for it. But at least in one state court in Iowa, the court ruled that a special scrutiny exists when considering gays and lesbians because they've been persecuted in the past. Any laws that incorporated classifications based on sexual orientation were probably going to be overturned. There was a special scrutiny, a rigorous test applied. It's not clear if the Supreme Court will apply the same as the Iowa court. We then look at Bush v. Gore. Here the 14th was used. The full story would require a full podcast, the events in Florida, the various court actions. But as we snuck through a 10-year anniversary of Bush v. Gore without anyone saying much about it, I think it's time. For the scope of this short discussion, we will say that the court ruled the different standards allowed by the Florida Supreme Court in terms of recounting violated the rights of Florida citizens. Votes might be counted in one county and not in another, so said the court. It was a per curiam decision, a nameless decision. But Scalia, Rehnquist, and Thomas wrote a concurring opinion, which obviously outed them, which seemed to be intended to head off critics. Here's what they wrote. In most cases, the court deferred to state law. Yes. 
But we've defended the legislature where state court was depriving from the legislature a scheme for electing the president. They feared both Article 2 and 14th Amendment problems with the case. That case caused bitterness on the court, perhaps some regret among members for even getting involved, according to Jeffrey Tobin's book as a source there. Ginsburg dissented, finding that the equal protection case was not made in Bush v. Gore. Rights established, small businesses sometimes furthered, people being denied entry to hotels and then required to be allowed entry into hotels, discrimination against various people blocked, and a president elected. All from a law written in 1866 that is lengthy and that we still don't fully have agreement on. Scalia now is in the majority of the court rather than the minority, as he was in Romer v. Evans. But on many of these issues, He'll find that Anthony Kennedy and now sometimes Chief Justice Robert, Anthony Kennedy was the author of Romer v. Evans, won't always be on the same side as he. In another part of his California lawyer interview, I noticed that he said that New York pizza was better than Chicago deep dish pizza. No problem there. But then he went too far. They should call those Chicago pizzas tomato pies. All this changing the name of a popular food item, all without a hearing. I'm inclined to agree with him about which pizza's better, but it's clearly a violation of due process for the deep dish guys. I've taken a bit of time on this cast because there is a lot to take in. Scalia's interview was done in 2009, and I wrote some of this then, and it's been in the notebook for quite some time. I've added bits and parts. I think now is a good time to talk about the 14th because of some of the recent Supreme Court cases coming up, but the history kind of shows that the discussion on this amendment is timeless in U.S. history Think it's since it's been ratified. I think I've learned some things. I noticed, for instance, the swiftness and calmness which with Miller, Justice Miller, took his pen to an amendment of the Constitution, and especially his note that These were new amendments, the 13th and the 14th, not as historic as the first 12, and he somewhat disregarded for that reason. That was unnerving for me. I didn't like Miller's point there. They're amendments. So should we view them like royal law, except the royalty is the people? After all, amendments are only amendments and not new sections or not given new articles in the Constitution because... From the time of the Bill of Rights, the first of the amendments, it was decided just to add them to the end of the Constitution. But they have the same power as any other part, any other article. Shouldn't we respect them more than the Slaughterhouse cases did? So I'm shocked by Slaughterhouse in that way. And given its effect on civil rights, the neutering of the 14th is the way to help people. I would have liked to go back in time and help who are trapped in offensive state governments that limited their rights all the way up to the 1960s. I find myself, of course, rooting for the other side, the men who tried to enact amendments to the Constitution to protect those people almost 100 years before. Then I also think of the other side in Slaughterhouse. Taking the opposite in that court case would have elevated the 14th to a defense of the right-to-work contract, reducing state regulation of business. It did get used this way for a time, at least in some ways. It never completely eliminated state regulation of business, of course. But it did prevent some of the things we know of and accept today. I root a bit for this, or at least I'm curious about it, because I wonder if the 14th couldn't be used as a kind of 
red tape buster, at least from some of the extreme. Uh, big license fee, onerous paperwork, laws to prevent small businesses from doing what they want, that prevent perhaps businesses we don't even think of from starting, especially in a time of recession where people need employment and maybe a little extra money on the side. I mean, maybe a little of that 14th protection of work and business could help. Especially if I say, let's say I just want to give people rides in my car to make a little extra money. Why should Connecticut or Utah tell me I have to get a license? I won't make that much, just a little extra. But I'm not going to do it if you require me a license. So I think about that. But I don't want to go too far with that either. I'm not a total free market guy. I do believe in states and the federal government have a right to regulate businesses. It leads me to a higher level. Miller is not totally wrong in Slaughterhouse. The 14th is a powerful magic wand type of law. Unleashed, it brings federal power to anything going on in the state that the federal government doesn't like. The states can be refuges of rights in some cases, and they are the laboratories of the ideas that could one day be federal. We have a choice to move to one state or another. It's not always easy, but we do have that choice. You have to let the states work first for them to be laboratories. That argument sounds like a state's rights one, but states' rights are not debatable. They're part of the American government. It's a function which, depending on your status left or right in politics, you may exaggerate to a mythic function. The states are all angels just protecting all our rights. Or write it off like it's old hat, that states' rights argument that only bad people use, and it means nothing in modernity but it is intended to be a function to ward against absolute centralization of political power at one federal capital. And I think it's worthwhile reminding anyone listening who might be of one political persuasion or another somewhere in the middle that federal governments come and they go. The one that sat in two houses of Congress and the presidency in 2003 and the one that sat in two houses of Congress and the presidency in 2009, were of exactly opposite political parties with exactly opposite intentions. That might help to guide you to a belief that you don't want one law for all 50 states. You want a little bit of flexibility. Thus, I wonder if the 14th can't be knocked down a peg. It should have been used more when there was actual recalcitrant government. The courts have struck probably a decent balance between using that magic wand and saying, as I think Miller might have, it's too powerful. Put it down, because once you pick it up, and I think thinking about the 14th in this way is just a good exercise. It might help how we view all of those amendments and laws. They are uber laws. They exist above the rest of the sets of laws, at least in the United States, protecting us from the werewolf of abuse. But they're not without their own limits either, and they have to be applied to reality. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. The archive, $25.99. You get hours and hours of episodes. If you like the program now, you're going to hear about so many topics that I don't even have time to get into in a full year. And if you do like the program, please tell someone about it. I'm so happy to see uh, references to the program on Twitter. Favorite us on Stitcher if you could. Give us a positive review or rate us on iTunes. Mention us on your blog. Twitter us, at MyHist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. 
Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.